Good morning. Um, Bill, we will pray for your face. <laughs> Thank you. That it improves <laughs> in several ways. Um, in first service, I joked, it was pretty funny. We're going to have to get a cut of him apologizing about his face and just put it to song or something and uh, drop a beat to it. <laughs> we'll put it on the website for everyone to enjoy. There you go. Um, as we come to God's word, uh, Psalm 119, verse 9 through 11, asks the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? And by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Please pray with me. Father, we do pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, according to your word, that you would not let us wander uh, from the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ and all of your commandments, that you would indeed implant your word in us, water to allow it to grow, uh, that we might not sin against you, but might continue to worship you and honor you with our lives. So this morning, as we come to your word, I pray That the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our God, our rock, and our Redeemer. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Our passage this morning will be 2 Peter. uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, we'll read verses 8 through 18. Um, I will not have time this morning to read or to preach through in detail all of these verses, but I want to read them uh, to give us some bit of context. And then I'll conclude um, or we'll, we'll take a look at Peter's concluding words here at the end of his final letter. So second Peter, chapter three, beginning in verse eight. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spots or blemish and at peace and count the the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorance and the unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and and to the day of eternity. Amen. And together the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. A few summers ago, I was in Orlando uh, for a week of seminary classwork. And uh, anytime I'm away from home, I imagine you can, you can imagine this as your home. You desire and you long to be back. But the nature of this particular week really heightened for me that desire. I was in class from Monday through Saturday. 
Um, I began at nine in the morning and then classes ended at nine in the evening. And in the morning, I had a counseling class, which proved to be emotionally taxing on my heart. Uh, In the evening, I was in a class on Paul's letters, which, um, you know, the professor sort of spoke Bible in the original language. And so that proved uh, mentally taxing on me. And, And sandwiched in between was this preaching class. Uh, in which we would all get up and preach to one another and 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 the the rest of us would would sit and 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 be forced to ensure that we stayed awake so that we could provide constructive feedback uh, and trust me that in and of itself is a chore that is entirely different uh, I stayed with Marcus and shannon brooks and and I had a a commute that was about thirty to forty five minutes depending on traffic, and so my days were very long. And towards the end of the week, I was driving home and I had this sudden urge. I had this urge to listen to a particular song, a very specific song. And so I opened up, I grabbed my phone, I opened up my Spotify account. And, and, and I'm still not sure why this particular song came to my mind. And, and I'm really not sure why in that moment I, I thought it was okay for this to be the song that I was going to play on the way home. But there it was on my phone, and and I was too tired to really give much thought to it. And so I began to stream this lovely ballad, You've Lost That Loving Feeling. Right? I I have no idea uh, why that song. Uh, But that song I played. And as the song played, I, I sang along. As, as the song came to a close, I thought, I'm going to hear that again. That was good. Um, and so I, I put it on repeat. And mind you, I had a really long commute. Um, and this was at the beginning of it. So the entire way home, this same song is on repeat. And I listened to it again and again and again and again and again. And with each successive playing, I would turn it up just a little louder and I would sing with a little more passion and energy until I finally pulled into Marcus's home in his driveway and thinking that, you know, you're going to turn the car off, go home and go to bed. No, I keep the car running. Why? Because the song was still playing. And there I am in there with the song, the speakers on as loud as I could get them. Tears, literally, I'm not making this up, tears literally streaming down my face. And I'm singing, you've lost that loving feeling. Whoa, that loving feeling. (laughs) You've lost that loving feeling. Now it's gone, gone, gone. Um, I turned the car off and went inside and went to bed as if it was normal. And the next morning I was eating breakfast and I started thinking about that. I started chuckling to myself, um, wondering what happened. I realized just how super dorky of a moment that was uh, for me. And I wondered if the neighbors woke up that night and were like, who are, who is Marcus and Shannon? These people are strange. Um, and I found myself wondering why. Why did I do this? And some might say it's the only right response to a a week of delving into the affections of my soul. Others might think it's the right response to 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 dealing with the Greek text of Paul's letters. But but honestly, the truth is, I just wanted to be home. And there was something uh, about this song, some strange reason this song helped me to express that desire and my longing to be home, to express the separation I felt from home. And it turns out that this rather ridiculous moment in my life ended up being a great gift that God gave to me because not only did it give me a good self-deprecating story, uh, but it also illustrated for me the real power Behind a text such as this. Because like my odd trip home that night in Orlando, it is our sense of home. Our desire for it. That has a significant impact on who we are, on what we do and the way that we live our lives.
For Christians, our home, our eternal home, our real home, the home that fills our minds with wonders and our, our souls with, with, with longing and our lives with the pursuit of holiness is our eternal home in the presence of Jesus. Living in the blessed presence of God has always been what life was about. I mean, this was the beauty at the beginning of creation. When God created all things and he made this wondrous space for man and woman to live and to know him in his immediate presence. Life flowed out to mankind as God would give his glorious presence to his people. And we were made, you and I, for this intimacy with God. And so our desires and our longings now can all be traced back to this purpose for which we are made. But we long. We don't have it. And we long because that life in the garden was interrupted. It was ruined by sin. God's immediate presence with his people was cut off and there was this separation. And then the big question became after that, how do we get back? How can we, God's people, how can the separation be overcome and we be home with the Lord again? And after that day, the need for a mediator who became a crucial necessity, the entire way of life for the people of God was about this reminder that they needed a mediator in order to take them home again. You know, so, so, so temples were built and, and altars were constructed and sacrifices were made. Priests were ordained and kings were installed and, and prophets were commissioned. And yet the people still felt and knew this separation. Because all of that was only temporary. It wasn't a restoration or a a rebuilding of the original reality that existed in in Eden, but rather it was it was a remix of what was. And the people felt it. They still waited and longed for more. They longed for another life. They longed for home. The people of God, they knew they were exiles and they knew that they missed what they needed most. And that was life lived in the very presence of God. And then in the course of history, some 2000 years ago, God came back. Jesus came. And with his coming, that reality that existed in the beginning began to be restored and rebuilt through this mediator, Jesus. God came. Jesus came in the flesh. It was God's presence with his people. And Jesus died so that there would no longer be a reason for this separation. Sin atoned for God's wrath, satisfied the people, cleansed. And thus this old temple and this old temporary remix system is destroyed with the death of Jesus. And with his resurrection, a new way is built, a new temple, a new creation, a new life. And this new life and this new creation is given to us, the church, when Christ ascends to his throne and he pours out his Holy Spirit. And then in that way, God would always live with us. But not only with us, but in us, we, his church, become the new temple, the very dwelling place of God. And this reality that's begun by the Spirit 
will come to full and final fruition when Christ comes again. His people, once again, we will live not in his mediated presence, but in his immediate presence. And the reality that existed in Eden will be restored and and rebuilt and it will be expanded into all the earth and, and all the earth will contain the very glory of God. It will be his dwelling with us. And this reality is what Peter in this passage calls the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. It is a place that is right, a place where righteousness dwells. And the reason that righteousness dwells there is because God dwells there. And thus we have this happy news that not only will we be without sin, but we'll be without the ability to sin. We will be raised imperishable, without spots and without blemish and at peace with God. But the best news, the best news is that we will see God face to face. We will behold his glory. And we will bask in his good pleasure. And there, all will be right again. That is our hope. That is our future. But for today, we wait. Uh, We wait and we long. But here's the thing. We don't wait without hope. We wait knowing that our home is with Jesus. Jesus came. He secured this home. He has guaranteed it. And he has promised it. Jesus is coming again. And our home is with him. And that's a reality that changes things even now. Uh, this, 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 this reality and this longing for the future glory is not antithetical to our present world and the, the lives that we live. This, this longing doesn't, for the future doesn't cause us to try to escape or to hole up uh, until that last day. But rather, it actually urges us out with boldness and with confidence to live now with our minds... Set on heaven. To live empowered by that future glory to do good today until the end of our days. Our home is with Jesus, and so we persevere. We persevere. We keep on living. We go on living, living for eternity and living for the one who holds our future in his good and gracious hands. Uh, Peter here in this letter, he's very concerned about his readers perseverance. And and Peter, we know he he knew firsthand um, how dangerous It can be to be a follower of Christ and to find uh, yourself on unstable ground and fail. He knew the threats and the many dangers that were out there that would threaten the stability and the perseverance of the church. And, and, And here in his letter, the primary threat that he deals with are these false teachers, these false uh, prophets. He calls them in verse three of chapter three scoffers. And in fact, all of chapter two is is a warning about 
these individuals and a description of them. He, he says that they are false teachers who secretly bring in destructive heresies. He says that they have hearts trained in greed. He says that they are insatiable for sin, full of sensuality. He says that they will seek to exploit you with false words and entice unsteady souls with false teaching. And they will lure the weak by the sinful passions of the flesh. And the really scary part is that their approach is not always so glaringly obvious. He says in verse uh, 15 and 16 that even they will even use Paul and the rest of the scriptures in order to justify their intentions. And, and Peter calls them ignorant and unstable. And he says that they, they will t- thus twist the scriptures uh, to their own destruction. And he says, sure, there are some things that Paul writes that are just difficult to understand. Some, some passages that are just hard to interpret. There are some concepts that, are, that we just struggle to get our minds around. But, but Peter points out that the danger is not in the difficulty of the text, but rather the difficulty is found in the heart of the individual. These are ignorant and unstable people uh, by ignorance, he, it means those who are unlearned or uninstructed in context with respect to the scriptures. Um, unstable refers to those who, who vacillate in their spiritual character. These are those who have not, in humility, listened and remained under sound instruction until they would have the light of knowledge and the holiness of character to rightly handle the word of God. Let me say that again, because I think it's instructive for us and for me and for our own lives and for our church. The ignorant and unstable are those who do not, in humility, listen and remain under sound instruction until they have the light of knowledge and the holiness of character to handle rightly the word of God. Peter goes on to say that these people, they twist or they wrench the scriptures in order to pursue their own unholy desires. The background of this word is, is that of a torture device, this word twist. And, and it gives the imagery of a person who is laid on a rack and then their limbs were pulled out by a windlass or what might be a winch of some sort. It was, in a sense, if you will, a torturing of the scripture. And, and the, the, the result of this torturing and twisting of scripture is their own destruction. Their own destruction. The sobering reality of their destruction is the reason for Peter's urgent call in verse 17 to take care, to watch yourselves so that the heir of these lawless and wicked men would not also carry you away to the same destruction. We must take care. We must Persevere because our very lives depend upon it. And Peter understands the great danger uh, that is for the church and that's coming against her. And so he urges us to not fall away, but to persevere. To persevere. And then in verse 18, he tells us how to do that. How is it that we are to take care? And he says this, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, persevere by growing, by growing in grace and imitation of Jesus and by growing in our knowledge and intimacy with 
Jesus. Peter says, if you do that, you will have persevered. If you do that, you will have what you desire. You will have your home with Jesus. And so the question for us is, what does it mean to grow in this grace and knowledge of Jesus? Well, first, to grow in grace means to grow in our imitation of Jesus. The Christian life is a life lived in pursuit of Christ-likeness, of holiness, of growth and grace. Now, now, grace here, we need to understand, is it, what Peter is getting at is the generic sense of the word um, as, as gifts, as gifts bestowed upon the believer in Christ in which we are called to pursue and to foster in our lives. Now, this is, this is different than the very specific way that we use grace, a capital G kind of grace as, as the unmerited favor of God by which we are saved. This is graces, if we refer to it collectively, or virtues, or what Paul would refer to as the fruit of the Spirit. He says to grow in Christ's likeness. And by, by Peter ending here, he actually ends where he began this letter. In chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, he tells us that, that in our Christian lives, we are to add various graces, graces, uh, graces such as virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. And he says to add these things, and then listen to this. In verse 8 and verse 10, he says this. For if these qualities that we've added, these graces, are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You see, the pursuit of godliness becomes a means by which we confirm our calling and election. These, uh, godliness is not the means to, to somehow merit God's favor, but rather it's a means to confirm and to, to give us assurance that we belong to God. Godliness is a means of perseverance. In chapter 3, the verses I read, Peter asked this question in verse 11. He says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And the answer comes in verse 14, when he says that we are to be diligent to be found by him, that is Jesus Christ, without spot or blemish and at peace. In Peter's first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, Verses 14 through 16, he says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In 2 Corinthians, Paul would agree. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You see, perseverance is not a, a static thing. We progress. We grow. We are to always be living in such a way that we are ever increasing in our imitation of Jesus. This simply is the practice of the Christian life. But notice, all along the way in, in these calls to pursue holiness... There is, in each of these verses, this, this, um, this constant assurance that we belong to Jesus. That we have 
our home with him and that our imitation of Jesus is actually grounded in our eternal home that is with God. Like in Second Peter chapter 1, I read, uh, Peter said, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. The very next verse, verse 11 says, For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Peter says, persevere. And your home will be with Jesus. In his first letter, I read uh, Peter's words in chapter 1, verse 5, that we are to be holy in all of our conduct. But that command is built on this promise in verse 13 that says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The grace that will come to you at the appearing in the second coming. Of our Lord. He says, persevere because your home is with Jesus. And, and in Paul, in 2 Corinthians 7, I, I read that he told us that we are to cleanse ourselves from every defilement and that we are to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. And, and, but that command comes after these words from God Himself. When God says, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. He says, it is God who preserves us. And he doesn't just promise that we will have our home with him, but he will make his home with us. And so, persevere. Persevere by imitating Christ, by growing in grace. And it's not only growing in grace, but it's also growing in the knowledge of Jesus. This, this growing in the knowledge of uh, 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 this knowledge here is, is not a reference to the basic knowledge that we have at conversion. Rather, it's a deepened understanding and an intimacy with that which is known. I was thinking about a way to illustrate this. Let me illustrate it like this. I've spent this spring and summer um, a lot of my time at the baseball diamonds. Uh, coaching um, baseball and softball both. And, and I was thinking about what does it mean to know the game of baseball? And, and, and we can turn on the TV and know something about the game. We can know and learn of its rules and even understand something of its strategy, right? Like we get that the pitcher is trying to throw great pitches to get the batter to swing and miss. And we get that, or maybe that he's just trying to throw pitches that the batter's going to hit where he doesn't want to hit it. And we, we get that the batter's up there and he's just looking for a, a, a pitch that he can put into play or, or maybe even a pitch that he can send out of the park. Right? We can, we can watch the game and we can enjoy the game in many ways through this knowledge. But there's another kind of knowing baseball. It's an intimate knowledge of the game. And it is this knowledge, this firsthand experienced and intimate knowledge with the game that makes the game of baseball truly wonderful for a little kid. It's the knowledge that he can only get when he puts on for the very first time his first game. You know, or it's the, the knowledge he gets when he stands in front of the mirror and makes sure his batting gloves are properly on display just outside of his back pocket. Right? It's the knowledge he has as he laces up his cleats and trots out onto that playing field for the very first time. It's the intimate knowledge that comes only from looking at the grass stain on his brand new white baseball pants from diving for a ball in the outfield. Or the nervous energy that he feels as he steps into the batting box, a batter's box, for the very first time after watching this pitcher warm up and throw more wild pitches than he did strikes. It's the knowledge that he gets when he 
when he experiences his first strawberry from sliding into second base or the thrill that he gets when he crosses home plate for the first time and all of his teammates slap him on top of the head. It's this knowledge that he has from sitting in the dugout and eating sunflower seeds and just hoping that the coach didn't notice that he accidentally spit one on the back of his shirt. It's the knowledge of him standing that he gets when he stands out under the lights and he sees thousands of bugs that serve as his great grandstand. It's the greatness he experiences when he walks into Dairy Queen after the game, covered in dirt And he hears the sound of his cleats clapping against the tile floor. That's what makes the game great for a little boy. And we can know something about the game of baseball. But oh, how the love grows in a different and more beautiful way when it's experienced like that. And so it is with Jesus. So it is with Jesus. Such knowledge and such intimacy grows in a beautiful way as a result of our constant fellowship and experience with him as we live out our days. In a sense, this is learning to get to know Jesus to a greater degree as we will one day ultimately know him in his immediate presence. We are to grow in this grace and in this knowledge of the Lord and our imitation and our intimacy of him. And by doing so, this safeguards and it 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 protects and it strengthens us against falling away. And and notice that the call to, to grow in this grace and knowledge is directly tied to the warning about false teachers and how they twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Now, I think the implication of this on the, the flip side to state it positively is that by attending rightly to the scriptures, we come to know life and perseverance and this growth in grace and knowledge. We must attend to the word of God. If we are going to persevere, we must attend to the word of God. If we are to, to, to grow in our imitation of Christ, we must watch him in his word, if we are, are to, to know Jesus more intimately, then we must meet him there, here in the scriptures. The word of God is powerful and it changes us. And the Lord speaks through the word of God. At the chapter one in this letter, uh, Peter speaks of the Mount of Transfiguration. And you remember the the Mount of Transfiguration is the time that Jesus ascends this high mountain and he takes with him uh, Peter, James, and John. And there Jesus is transfigured. The disciples see the radiant divine glory of God in Christ. And, And they hear this voice, the voice of the Father come from heaven. And Peter brings this up here in this letter because what he's trying to get across is that the apostles were eyewitnesses of this glorious event and, and they heard this voice from heaven. And because of that, they, along with all the church, can have great confidence about who Christ is and what he's done. They saw this. They were there when it happened. And it gives us confidence. But notice in verse 19, Peter goes on to say, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns 
and the morning star rises in your hearts. The disciples had this one event in the transfiguration. And they had this momentary voice that they heard from heaven. But Peter says, we have the prophetic word, a thing that is enduring and a voice that is eternal. And this this word of God, this eternal voice is his wisdom given to us that we would do well to pay attention to because it is a lamp that shines in the darkness. It is what lights up our path that we might not fall, that we might persevere until the day of his glorious appearing, until the day we are home in his immediate presence. Uh, John does the same exact thing at the beginning of his first letter. Uh, Flip a page over, look at first John uh, chapter one. He's speaking about his experience with Jesus. He says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. Now he's writing about his personal experience and knowledge of Jesus and Jesus lived with his disciples. They saw him with their very own eyes. They heard him with their very own ears. They, they touched him with their very own hands. But then John turns and he says, begins to, to speak and about the blessing that they possessed in their personal experience with Jesus. Everyone else gets through their testimony. Notice in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He says that the same fellowship and the same intimacies that the disciples had with Jesus, the church has through their proclamation. That's an amazing thought. They felt Jesus' warm embrace. And we can know the same intimacy through what they proclaim to us. And not only their verbal witness, but, but also through their writings. Verse 4. And we are writing these things to things so that our joy may be complete. The joy of the disciples in their knowing Jesus is shared with the church as the church knows Jesus through the word of God. We must attend to the word of God as we wait and we long for home. We must always be a people of the word, remaining under sound instruction that we would know Jesus, that we would grow up in maturity in Christ, lest we be ignorant and unstable and be so easily carried away by the air of lawlessness. This is why in our worship service, The most transformative thing that we do is worship. We become what we worship. That's why in our worship service, the word of God is front and center. We speak the word of God. We we sing the word and the truth therein. We proclaim it. We profess it. We can confess from it. We repent based upon it. We pray the word of God. We hear, we preach, we Listen to the word of God because it changes who we are. And we must be careful not to deceive ourselves 
uh, as we are spending time in the scripture, that we don't allow that time to be merely informational and sort of an intellectual infatuation. Uh, But our attention to the word of God must always be about knowing Jesus and becoming like him. It must always be about intimacy and imitation. Um, A number of years ago, my family and I, we lived in St. Louis. And we were there because I was at, at Covenant Seminary. And I lived during that time in this constant tension. I went to school full time. I worked full time and I was supposed in the midst of that to be a husband and a dad and a good one at that. And uh, I had this always this always this this feeling of no matter where I was, I was struggling in this tension that I lived with. When I was at, at work, I felt like I needed to be studying and or, or at home. And 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 when I was when I was studying, I felt like I should be working to provide or at home providing. And, and when I was at home, guess what? <laughs> I felt like I should probably be studying or at work. And so I was feeling overwhelmed by this. And so I emailed Bill and uh, seeking for his help. Um, and how I was going to do this successfully. Truth is, I was probably just emailing him to forewarn him of my coming failure. And um, his response was, was really helpful. Uh, he said this. He said, Ryan, work when you can. Spend time with your family when you can. He said, but the most Valuable thing that you can do for you, your family, is to study well. To study well. A few weeks later, I'm with a friend and and we're studying together and he's struggling with the same balance of family, work and and seminary. And uh, I share with him Bill's response. And I remember him looking at me puzzled and saying, Ryan, how in the world is being good at parsing Greek participles going to help my wife and my children? He didn't get it. He didn't get that the advice was not about education and classroom performance, but about knowing God. It was not about the mastery of materials, but about intimacy with Jesus. It was not about the expansion of my theological categories and vocabulary, but about my growth in godliness an imitation of him. It was about attending to the word of God in such a way that there in St. Louis, I would meet Jesus and thereby be changed. The best thing that we, you, that I can do for our own lives for our families, for the church, is to study well. To study well, to attend the word of God and there meet Jesus and be changed. To grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, In my office, I have on the bulletin board above my desk uh, a long quote. Uh, It's from Martin Luther. And as I make my way through life and and ministry, and I see the many-sided dangers and threats that threaten both my perseverance and, and the perseverance of the church, it is a good thing for me to read and be reminded Because the point of it is that that, that Martin Luther is making is that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That Jesus has always been the one in the past who has sustained his people. 
And Jesus is always the one in the present who is sustaining and preserving his people. And Jesus will always be the one who will sustain his people until they have their home with him. And what I want to do in concluding is I want to read his final prayer. And I want it to, uh, to do two things. One, I want it to be a final encouragement that it is Christ who sustains and preserves us for our future home with him. And two, I want it to be our closing prayer. that we would pray that the Lord will enable us to persevere until we do indeed arrive safely into his blessed presence. So with that, let me please pray with me. Christ, our dear God and Bishop of our souls, which you have bought with your own precious blood. Sustain us, your little flock, by the might of your own word, that we might increase and grow in grace and knowledge and faith in you. Comfort and strengthen us, that we may be firm and steadfast against all the crafts and assaults of Satan and this wicked world. Hear our hearty groaning and anxious waiting and longing for the joyful day of your glorious and blessed coming and appearing. May there be an end of this murderous pricking and biting of the heel of horrible poisonous serpents. And may there come finally the revelation of the glorious liberty and the blessedness of the children of God for which we wait and we hope with patience and to which we, as those who love the appearing of Christ, our life, we say from the heart, amen and amen.